taking a hiatus here from Titus uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, one of which is I won't be here next week, and so Jeremy will be teaching. Um, and we were about to go into older women and younger women, and those two are, we will see, are tied together because the older women are to teach the younger women. And so rather than break that up over two weeks, and considering we're missing uh, a lot of uh, the, the regulars here, uh, I decided to put that aside. It is Resurrection Sunday, after all. And so I wanted to take time to focus on that. Um, is, this, is this a pagan thing that we do to look at a particular day, to set aside a particular day? Is it inappropriate for us to do this? It's historical, it's just not biblically mandated. Okay, the event is historical. The, is that what the, you mean? The holiday, the celebration of a calendar. Days. Okay. We see in the Old Testament the setting aside of certain days, but we don't see a biblical command. And you can find a lot of connections with pagan holidays that were around this time. Okay. So should we not be doing this then today? No. Oh, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I don't stand here and protest. Sorry. So. That, no, it's a... What is some? What it's is? Not, it's not an irredeemable uh, day. It's not. A, it's not an inherently pagan holiday. Okay, good. So, what is good about setting aside a day where we do remember? Hopefully, it, it keeps. I mean, when we look at the history of churches and veering away from the gospel, hopefully, the church would have a hard time preaching an Easter Sunday without talking about the actual death and resurrection of Jesus. So, like, as far as accountability for the church and to the flock, it's, it's, it's a good point with human nature. So do we have precedent? <clears throat> go, go Supreme Court here. Do we have precedent for setting aside a day to remember? The Old Testament days. I mean, there are all kinds of celebrations around the Exodus. Good. Good. You know, God calls his people to remember over and over and over and over and over and over and over again throughout scripture to remember, remember what he has done. And there is nothing no more foundational or fundamental than this. I, was, I mean, these are not, at least in my life, abstract questions. I mean, the church I grew up in was very much opposed to any kind of extra Christmas celebrations for Easter they, they weren't, they didn't force it on anyone, but there was a culture of, you shouldn't do this. Yeah, Paul, Paul, go, Paul makes a point to go, you know, some people are going to consider one day important, others are not. It's not, a, it's not the day so much. Okay, if, if this day is a whole, this is a holy day, and, you know, this is the only day I'm going to wear my tie today, and, you know, or, or whatever, and I begin to worship the day, and this becomes the thing instead of God becoming the thing, then we miss the boat uh, on that. Um, that. That was something our daughter asked about yesterday. She says, why, why is it that so many people who aren't Christians practice Easter? And I'm like, well, 
talked about the nature of secularizing of a, a holiday. Yeah. We, I, oh, it's just, it's, it's toxic. Yeah. I mean, there's, at least with Christmas, St. Nicholas, Santa, you know, there is, a, when you he see did. the, when you he see the guy, yeah, when you see the guy in the red suit, if you peel back the onion and go deeper in there, God is there. But bunnies and eggs and, I mean, it is a corrupt holiday. It is a corrupted holiday, and to find the resurrection in there, in our culture, it, it, it's just not there. I mean, Google's, Google's never going never gonna put a cross meme on their homepage. I always with a, go... With an empty grave. I, I go there, I go there in hopes of going, <laughs> you know, so many of your users are Christian. You know, and on Ramadan, please, you know, do whatever, you know, show a picture of Mecca. You know, honor, honor the Muslims on that day. But, you know, anyway, what are you going to say? I just, as I was reviewing the various notes I've collected over the years on Easter, I pulled up this article this week. It's from 2006, where a church in Pittsburgh was trying to pull away from the secularization of Easter. So they had their big community-wide bunny Easter egg thing. And then, so that they could make sure the children understood Easter, they flogged the bunny. What? Yes. Because <laughs> they wanted to show that Easter was really not just about bunnies and eggs. Was so the actual person in the bunny? So they were, Well, that's what most of the people thought, too. I don't know, but the number was a flogging or just a comical one. No, it's supposed to be like serious. Like, I don't think it hurt. But All right. nonetheless, it's this weird, we like, are, gone secular, but we are, why not just shoot? We are going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 today. 1 Corinthians 15 as we take a step away from Titus. Um, our, our culture is exceedingly hostile to Christ. It is exceedingly hostile toward things Christian and the recognition of things Christian, of these events. It is hostile and it will not abide Christ and therefore culture will not abide you trying to infuse Christ into your public life. Here, this is becoming more and more true and so are we going to cower or are we going to stand and so we need a reminder here paul is going to remind the corinthian church paul spent extensive time with the corinthians he didn't do a touch and go there he was with them for 18 months you can read all about that in acts chapter 18 and he that was on his second missionary journey that he spent extensive time with them after being punted out of Thessalonica it goes down to Berea ends up getting driven out of Berea by the Thessalonians makes his way down to Athens speaks at the Areopagus finally Titus and Timothy or Silas and Timothy come on down and they move over into Corinth, and they're there for a year and a half, building a church there. And we read in the letters here, in follow-on, that they have issues after, after they have left. After the missionaries have left, and the church is on their own, 
pretty soon like a spinning plate. You know, oh man, it's spinning really well. And if you just let it go and walk away, pretty soon the plate starts to wobble. Somebody needs to come back and spin it again. And so Paul continues to spin the Corinthian plate through letters. He sends them letters and desires to visit them again. But even in 18 months and these letters, he's almost done with this letter. A very extensive letter. Here in chapter 15, he goes back to the fundamentals. Uh, and we see the importance, the huge importance of the fundamentals. Uh, Arnold, would you read please verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians? Now I would, would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Huge. Okay, so remember... I, I'm, I'm reminding you, remember, you must remember this to keep your plate spinning on a level keel. I want to remind you, brothers. So he is speaking to them as one believer to another. Okay, believer to believer. I am assuming as I, as I write this letter to you, I am assuming as I speak to you, I speak to believers. Now, a brief aside. Um, even though I speak to you as believers, I don't assume that you are all believers. Nor would Paul delusionally think that everybody who hears this letter is a believer. But God's word is powerful. God's word is extraordinary to do a work in even an unbeliever's heart through a message to believers. It's the gospel message. And this is so important to believers, but this is the very thing that changes an unbeliever to a believer, and that is the message of the gospel. He's, he's reminding them of the gospel that he preached to them. Uh, not only did Paul preach it to them, they received it. They received it and took it in. And this is the thing that changed their life. It is the thing on which they now stand. It is their foundation again. It is by this that they are being saved. He preached it. They received it. They stand upon it. And it is upon this that their salvation and their sanctification depends. This thing. This thing is the thing that Paul wants to remind them. But then he puts a caveat in here. If, if what? Can the if be a sin? No, it's a caveat. It's not a sense. This is, this is a qualifier. This is not since you hold fast to the word. He's not assuming that. 
It is if you do. If you hold fast to the word, because, and you see that borne out in the next phrase, unless you believed in vain. So if you don't hold fast, it's belief in vain and the um, being saved is not happening. Right. And this is, this is important because we read this throughout Scripture and it is uncomfortable. This is where people start to wonder, can I lose my salvation? In this idea of holding fast, we see another term uh, arise. It's called perseverance. If you are redeemed, you will persevere. Okay? He who began a good work in you, he is faithful to complete it until the end. How will he do that? He will do that in and through your perseverance. He will move in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Extraordinary. He moves in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. He moves in you to hold fast, to persevere. How do I have the strength to persevere? I don't. I only have strength as Christ gives me strength. As I was saved by him, I continue in my salvation in him. Again, a gospel foundation. I'm not going to turn from that gospel. Are there believers or people who will at one point in their life maybe go through something very tragic, a death of a child or something, and then they, in a sense, turn away from God, but they're still a believer? Because aren't there instances in the Bible that talks about God disciplining those who are, are not persevering? God disciplines those he loves. So God, God will bring very difficult trials <coughs> to ultimately bring you back. God's desire is restoration over and over again. So ultimately, perseverance is the key there. But there are times in Christians' lives where they may go through a time that they're not because to say you're saying they're not persevering I, w I would I would I would not use that word okay they're not they're I mean not holding fast that words here they're not holding fast to the word they've been discouraged and now you will you will face trials and travails in your life where and you go, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I, I can't hold on. But I, I, I would go to a faithful word. The holding fast, it doesn't depend upon me. Nothing can snatch you from my hand. Nothing can snatch you from my Father's hand. Who said that? Jesus. Jesus. But if it doesn't depend on me, then why does it say if you hold fast? 
because it, this is, this is, because there is, think of it this way and this way again. Okay? I must persevere. What Paul talks about here with the Corinthian church is what we see also within the letter to Hebrews. And in fact, go ahead and hold your place here and flip over to Hebrews chapter 3. And in Hebrews chapter 3 through 5, if you simply pluck verses, you're going to say, you can lose your salvation. You can lose your salvation. But here is the thing that we see if we take Scripture in total. What we see is that there are going to be people who receive the word. And, and Christ even says this in his parable of the soils. Who receive the word gladly. And they, they start to grow. And you go, they're a believer. But when the trials of this world come. Or the, the pressures of, of Satan. They collapse and are no more. They are no more. There are people who will hear the gospel and go, this is good. And believe they are saved. They would say they are saved. Who then turn and reject the gospel and go away from it. In... in uh, I had you turn to uh, chapter 3, um, down in verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. He goes on in verse 8. Therefore, going back to the Old Testament, and he uses that as an example, do not harden your hearts as in the, in the rebellion. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Chapter 4, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So he is speaking to brothers, but he is giving a language that says we have to continue our Christian life is not one of idling. I can't idle. I must progress to the promised land. I must hold fast. But I go, I, I, if I, I, now here it is. Okay, if I do this in my own strength, if I go, okay, I'm going to keep, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray regularly, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to come to church, and I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Where's my love for Christ? It's not. I'm doing works. There's a difference here. My love for Christ, my passion for Christ, and my, my, my recognition of my own limitations is going to turn me to him over and over. I, I've got nothing. I cling to his feet. I cling to Christ. I must persevere. John in, in 1 John chapter 2 verse 19 talks about those who were of us and went away. We thought they were of us. They seemed like they were of us, but they're gone now. Well, they never were truly of us. 1 John chapter 2 verse 19. 
So there is a demand here for perseverance. Persevere. Don't give up. Don't, don't let the trials in the world uh, pressures get you down. Don't let the enticements of riches and power and job distract you from the gospel message. Okay, and so here is his reminder of, of, of primacy. Okay, first importance. And that's what he says in verse 3. Therefore, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Okay, Paul's going, I didn't make this up. I received this from whom? Christ. Paul is an apostle. Paul was instructed by Christ. This came to him by Christ. All right, so Paul received this. Okay, this is of first importance. This is what I would call a non-negotiable. This is, for me, a conviction. This is true. This is something I will die for. What is that thing? That Christ died. Christ died, why? For our sins. Okay, now, this, this may sound really silly, but if Christ died, what had to have been true? He lived. He lived. Okay? He lived. You go, okay, that's really silly. But do you understand there are people in our country, in the world, who believe that Jesus Christ did not ever exist. He was not a person. He is a myth. Okay? They would say there is no proof. Um, I would argue as proof, I would argue that there is proof. Um, and again, people will, will dismiss this as well. We always look back to historical documentation as evidence for things that have happened. We do. Um, outside of the four Gospels, and they're an incredible testimony by themselves, there are also extra-biblical citations, very early, first century, first early second century citations of unbelievers who refer to Christians and the persecution, persecutions that they faced. Uh, one of them was a guy named Pliny the Younger. He wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan in which he discussed the conduct of Christians. That letter is from AD 112 is, is when they, they put it. AD 112. So less than 100 years after Christ was crucified and raised from the dead, there is a letter speaking about Christians at that time. Again, Christ followers. Uh, another one from uh, Tacitus. He was a Roman senator and a historian. He uh, was prolific in his writings, and in one of his writings, the Annals, which also is about 100 AD, he spoke of Nero's persecution of the Christians back in the middle of the first century that they were following this one Christus. Okay. 
that's, that's pretty early documentation of the existence of one who essentially started this movement. It doesn't say anything about died, rose again from the dead. Okay, well, died, it does speak of, of his death in Josephus, uh, who was a Jewish historian, and there are some aspects of, of Josephus's citation that some believe were corrupted because it speaks of him, again, rising from the dead as though he were a god. And some think that maybe some Christians corrupted that writing. And you put that aside and you go, at the very least, Christ is spoken of in the writings of Josephus. Again, as a historical being. And so, it's hard to argue that he existed, though some still do. So, he lived, yes, but he also died. Um, now, some would dispute the fact that he really died on the cross. What are some reasons we believe or are convinced that Jesus died on the cross? Well, the amount of testimony of the Gospels and the, uh, the accounts of uh, apostles that falling. Okay. It's not something typically people don't die for those kind of conspiracies. Okay. Uh, because we believe the Bible. Okay, the we, word do, of God. we do. Okay. Uh, some would argue that is a circular argument, though. And that for us as believers, we go, that's fine. I don't, I don't care really what they think. And that is sufficient for me. But there is evidence, though. My, my faith isn't a, oh, I wish, I wish, I hope, I hope kind of evidence. It's an absolute. Why? Are the, why do the gospel testimonies point to the fact that Christ died? Where I go, yeah, that shows that he's dead. Blood and water from his side. Yes. That would only happen. Yes. The, the Romans were, were executioners. That was their job. These guys who put him on the cross, that was their job to make sure he's dead. And it was getting close to the Sabbath and they didn't want the bodies hanging on the cross so they went around busting the legs of the... Cruel man. Busting the legs so the guys couldn't push up anymore and they would just suffocate on the cross. And so they got to Christ and they went, oh, he looks like he's dead. Looks like he's dead. Let's find out. And so they took a spear and ran it up under his rib cage into the sack around his heart. And because of the distress of his asphyxiation, his suffocation there, the blood began to congeal and the plasma separated from that. And so it is medical proof. Doctors will say this. They go, that is, that's a pretty good evidence that he died of suffocation right there. That the, the, the blood was now goopy comes out separated from the plasma, which just came out rushing, and then the blood would ooze out after that. Um, you, you think of the beatings that he endured, the scourging that he endured there. We know that men hung on the cross for days. Well, why didn't he? Why did he die so quickly? He got, he got, he got, he got the tar beaten out of him uh, by a scourging on top of it. Let me just scourge him 
you know, kind of as, a, as the lesson, and then we'll give them back to you. No, we want them crucified too. Okay, not much left. Now, it's interesting to note here, you know, Paul tells them he died for our sins. Okay, we'll talk about that a little bit at the end. But notice how he qualifies that. He died in accordance with the scriptures. This was prophesied that he would die. Uh, Isaiah 53, a, a great prophecy of the death of Christ. Verse 10 of 53 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And why was it the will of the Lord to crush him? Back in verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So why did he die? He died, he was crushed for our sins. As Paul says, in accordance with the scriptures. And that is a very vivid one. Go all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15, the very first prophecy that this was going to take place when God told the serpent, he will bruise your head and you will strike his heel. For just a few. And then Paul, to emphasize his, his, his deadness, he not only died in accordance with the scriptures, but verse 4 says they buried him too. Okay, so you take him off the cross and you go, yeah, he's dead. He's dead. He's so dead, we're going to put him in a tomb. It's not like there's, oh, he's going to be revived in the coolness of the tomb. He's dead. This is fundamental for us to understand in history. In reality, God the Son died. And we'll get to, we'll talk a little bit of the significance here in just a moment. But not only did he die, he didn't stay dead. Verse 4 again in 15. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You know, this is, Paul is speaking of not a myth, not a hope. He's speaking of a space time event he was dead and he was raised when the third day in accordance with the scriptures um, in Acts chapter 2 verse 27 as, as Peter is giving his sermon at Pentecost he <laughs> Quotes Psalm sixteen, verse ten. So in Acts chapter two, verse twenty-seven, Peter says, "You will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your holy one see corruption." You will not leave me in death. You will not let your Holy One see the rot of his body. See corruption. From Psalm 16, verse 10. 
Peter is looking back to that event and saying, this is why we see God the Father (coughs) testifying to what he was going to do in the future. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, you see the speaking of the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. So this is where the Pharisees would have an understanding and a belief in a resurrection. Um, But specifically, Psalm 16 speaks of the resurrection of the Holy One. So as Paul speaks here that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures, we go, yes. But Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 12, as an evidence for who he is, said that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so too the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Before he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. So is Paul hearkening to the, the, the testimonies of Jesus himself? Or the formulating of the gospel accounts that were probably taking place at about the same time that Paul is making this declaration to the Corinthian church? Quite possibly. But Paul goes on to speak of Christ being raised, and as proof, again, he could just leave it there and say, in accordance with the scriptures, and let scriptures testify to you that this is true. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He says, there were witnesses. And not only were there witnesses, most of those guys are still around who saw him. Okay, why... Why would we go, well, they're just seeing things? Why would we say this is not kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy? They're just seeing things in their imaginations. Because there were too many of them. There was one time he appeared to 500 at once. Thomas even said that's what they're doing. What do you mean? Well, Thomas was told Jesus rose, and he goes, I don't believe that. That's your imagination. Yes. So what did, what did Christ, what was Christ's evidence to Thomas? Touch, Touch me. I'm not, a, I'm not a phantasm. I'm not a ghost. I'm real. Yeah, and he still had the scars. Physical scars on a physical body. Not a, this is not a, a ghost presence which means there was a pre-living body, an actual killed body, and an actual risen, risen body. Yeah. What, what did he do on the shore of Galilee also? Yeah, he ate. He was eating. He was eating. Now, Chuck Colson, I don't know if you know who Chuck Colson was. He started... Uh, uh, prison Fellowship Ministries, uh, just a great ministry for getting into prisons and helping guys get out of prison through the message of the gospel. But Chuck Colson was involved in the Watergate break-in back in 1972. Um, and there, were, there was a, an inner group 
in President Nixon's administration who broke in to the Democrat, Democratic National Convention office to plant bugs, to hear what they were going on, to hear their strategy. And ultimately they were found out. And they, could, they started out lying. But as investigations went on and the pressure went up, every one of them copped the plea. Every one of them broke away from the lie. And this was one of the most convin convincing things for Chuck Colson. Is you have 12 apostles. You know, if, we, if we throw Paul in here to dismiss Judah, Judas out and, and fold Paul in. You have 11 apostles who went to their death. 11 of the 12 went to their death believing that Jesus Christ died and rose again. They went, they went to their death because they professed this. They went to their death because of this belief and conviction. And Chuck Colson was like, man, if it was a lie, they'd have been copping a plea just like all the guys in Watergate. These were the most powerful men in our country whimpering like little children. Oh, you know, I'll do anything to have my sentence reduced. I'll point my fingers if I have to. If the most powerful men in the country couldn't hold up a lie, Chuck Colson looks at this and goes, these 11 guys, apart from John, they all went to their death because of this, if it was a lie. Guys don't go to their death because of a lie. They go to their death believing something is true. So they all believed they had seen the risen Christ. And that's what Paul is telling the Corinthian church here. He appeared to Cephas and to the 12, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, Jesus' brother, and then also to the apostles. So there's, there's proof. These are fundamentals, that Christ died and that Christ rose again. These are the things that Paul sets forth. These were initially the, 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 the key aspects. This was a, uh, a creed. This was like one of the earliest creeds right here. That Christ died and he rose again. So what is, what is the significance of this? Um, What is the significance of this sacrifice? What is the significance of this death? We have to understand that in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, that the sin debt of man remained unpaid. The sin debt of man remained unpaid. Could I ask you to? Thank you. Um, sin general, mankind uh, was broken at the fall. Mankind, one sin. 
So that, that one sin essentially ruined it for everybody. But each one of us just kind of heaped on, heaped onto the pile. And all of the sin past was unpaid. All of the sin future had no hope until the death of Jesus Christ. Man stood condemned. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, without a perfect sacrifice, there is no forgiveness of sin. Later on in that same chapter, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What is his death? His death takes care of sin. There is no more sacrifice. There's nothing else. It's Jesus plus nothing to cover sin. Nothing. Chapter 10, verse 10. He died once for all. Well, I don't have to keep taking the Eucharist. I don't have to go to confession. I don't have to be baptized. I don't have to. I don't have to. It's Jesus. It is that sacrifice that covers your sin. There is no other name under heaven by which man may be saved. There isn't. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So it is in the death that we have hope. But Paul tells us, in, if you're still in 1 Corinthians 15, that it, it, is, it is in the resurrection that I have hope as well. Uh, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So it was needful for Christ to have been raised. In that resurrection, we have hope. Paul declares in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Romans 6, verse 6, says the same thing. As Paul tells the Romans, it's not just him who has been crucified with Christ. We all have been crucified with Christ. Our sin debt was taken care of on that cross. And you hear the, the term substitutional penal atonement. What does that mean? That means you were there. Okay, all of your sin was put on him there in that death. But it doesn't stay there. Romans 6 tells us that, yes, we were crucified with Christ, but we were raised with him. Why? To walk in newness of life. As Christ was raised, we have the hope of eternal life. Now. Right 
Now you have eternal life. I write these things that you may know, John says in his gospel and in his first epistle, that you may know that you have eternal life. So I can have confidence in this. And I take the exhortation to persevere, to hold fast, to go, of course. Of course. I absolutely will persevere. I can't not. Why would I do anything but? In him is my only hope. In Galatians 2.20, I just mentioned, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. He goes on to say, though, so it is no longer I who live. If I have been crucified with Christ, it is, Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in my skin, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I think back to that gospel message. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me, was crucified for me, and was raised for me. This is the power for us as saints. This is the thing that Paul wanted to remind the Corinthians. This was the power of their life, eternal. This was the power for them to walk and live in holiness. And this is the power of the glory of God in our church. First things. Christ died, Christ rose again. So here on 8th and Travis and around the city and around the country, we celebrate this and we remember this. I thought it was needful here to take time as Paul did with the Corinthian church to go, hey, let us, let us just wade on this, think on this uh, for a morning. Any thoughts?